0: Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thanks, Carl. Well, I've got, uh, I've got some more summer reading, uh, just in case you didn't get anything last week. Uh, a few more books. Uh, if you're interested in the universe next door, in what other religions, other worldviews think, uh, so uh, through the history of the world and also... Uh, people like uh, Hinduism and uh, other kind of New Age philosophies and stuff like that. The Universe Next Door, great book. Uh, very easy reading, actually. Uh, harder reading. This is for uh, those who want to punish themselves over the summer holidays. Uh, this is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. It's an absolute classic. Um, but if you, if you find the death of Jesus an enigma, uh, then this is the book to read. Uh, it's, it explains why Jesus uh, had to die uh, in order for us to be saved. And then finally, I quoted from this book last week, The Reason for God. It's by Tim Keller. Uh, it's a book that uh, seeks to address the concerns that people have, like uh, for why they don't want to believe the gospel, the belief blockers um, that people have. He addresses those. And then he also puts forward in the second half of the book a really compelling case for why the gospel is a worldview to be believed and embraced Uh, So, three great books there. I'll leave them down the front. Uh, They're from the library, if you want to pick them up, Uh, you can do that afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we come to your word now, we ask that you'd open our ears uh, and our hearts, that we might receive... Uh, Your words, you speaking to us in your word, through your Holy Spirit, uh, about your Son, Jesus Christ. Build us up, uh, save us, uh, and encourage us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there's nothing, I don't think, as frightening as being trapped. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been trapped and you're unable to get out of it. You, You don't know what you can do. Uh, in 2003, Aaron Ralston was climbing a canyon in Colorado when a boulder fell and trapped both his arms. Uh, he managed to get one of those arms out, but the other one was stuck. I think it was for a couple of days. He was there kind of trying to keep himself going, uh, and he, he couldn't get out. He discovered the only option that he had was to cut his own arm off with his pocket knife. It wasn't even a good quality one, apparently. It was a kind of a subs, substandard one. Uh, and because he couldn't break through the bone, disturbing, he had to he had to cut the he had to break the bone, uh, you know, by force rather than cutting through. Uh, it took him an hour to cut his arm off. I read more than I ever wanted to, <laughs> wanted to know this week. Uh, it took him an hour to cut his own arm off to, to to become untrapped, and then he still had to, having cut his arm off, get to safety. even though I'm a uh, rel- relentlessly pessimistic person, remarkably, I find that when I imagine myself in a situation where I'm trapped, I always imagine myself getting out. Trapped in a car that's driven into a lake and you manage to kick the windscreen out, yes, and scramble to safety. Uh, you know, trapped in some kind of rock fall, you know, whatever might happen, and you manage to just kind of pull enough uh, debris away to be able to, to crawl out. I suspect that I'm not alone in being remarkably upbeat about my chances of survival. I, I think that most of us, actually, when we, when we imagine being trapped, we imagine the possibility of escape. We like to think, yeah, if I was in that situation, I'd probably be able to get out. But not everyone who is trapped escapes. I think the most harrowing accounts from uh, the events of September 11 were those stories of people who were trapped uh, above where the planes hit the World Trade Center towers, the planes uh, went in and, and the people in the, in the stories, above, in the levels above, couldn't get out. The fire blocked their way. They, there was, and they were there for the last hours of their life, uh, trapped in a situation from which they couldn't escape. It's the stuff of nightmares, I think, to be in a, trapped in a situation and you can't get out. You can't get yourself out and no one can get to you to get you out either. And in many ways, that's the kind of the theme or the, the kind of the beginning predicament of this psalm, of Psalm 130. It's a psalm, it's a song, it's a poem that someone's written about being trapped and them looking for a way out. They say right up front in verse 1, the writer describes his predicament as being like in a deep pit. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. He's trapped at the bottom of this deep pit and he can't get up. He can't get out. He can't clamber up the, the walls at the side. He, he can't pull off some kind of MacGyver escape. There's no arm or leg that he can cut off in order to free himself so that he can get out. He's trapped, and there's no one there at the top. There's no one with a rope to pull him out. All he can do is cry out to God, "O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy." Of course, he's not really at the bottom of a deep pit. It's just a, a metaphor, right? This is this is a poem. It's just a picture. It's an illustration. But why does he feel like that's the situation of his life? Why does he feel like he's at the bottom of a deep pit? The answer is in verse three. He says, "If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand?" The writer, uh, the reason the writer feels like he's at the bottom of this deep pit is because of sin. Sin is uh, just the Bible's word for the things that we do wrong. It's the way that we fall short of God's plan and purpose. The writer says, if God kept a record of all those times, of all those ways that we fall short of of, of what God designed us to be, if God kept a record of that, no one could stand. Now, at first, I think the idea of someone keeping a record of all the things that we've done wrong, I think the, the idea of someone doing that. We find maybe a bit off colour. You know, imagine if uh, if I kept a, a list in my pocket, you know, of uh, of all the things that you'd done wrong, and uh, and every time you came to speak to me, I said, I said, well, let's not forget uh, that time that you said that you would clean up after dinner, and uh, and what happened? To who had to clean up? It was me. You'd think, well, that guy's a bit of a loser. Uh, you might, you might think that anyway. But, um, but it seems petty, doesn't it, to keep a record of sins, to keep a record of wrongs. But at some level, I think, as a society, we recognise that there can be times and, and places where that's important. We have criminal records. And although that can be a millstone hanging around people's necks, you know, if they've done something that they regret and they want to move on with life, uh, on another level, it can be important. You want the police to know, don't you, who, who, who's who been involved in, in drug dealing and drug manufacture so that they can try and stop it. You, you want the police to know who, who the sex offenders are so that people can be kept safe. You want the security services to know who it is who's, who, who's been interested in... Um, you know, in, in terrorism and ex, and is being connected with extremist groups. But this psalm says that it's not just the murders and the drug dealers and the sex offenders who can't stand before God, but, n- but no one can stand before God. If God keeps a record of, of, of sins, no one can stand. And I don't think we actually need anyone to... To convince us of that, I think that if we examine our own hearts, if we think about our own lives and our own conditions, that we know that that's true. We know deep down that that's true. All of us uh, have things in our lives of which we're deeply ashamed, things that we've done that we can't undo. And not just sort of one or two things. Well, there was that one thing, you know, back in, uh, you know, 92... That, uh, that one day. But, but no, it's, it's, it's lists of things that we've done that we're ashamed of. Take just the example of the way that we treat other people. If you've lived long enough, there'll be people in your life who, who you may never see anymore, uh, who never speak to you and you never speak to them because there's a rift between you and, and you've caused it and you can't do anything to heal that. And even if the way that you treat people hasn't caused this kind of massive rift and there's this, you know, relationship is just terminated forever, the way that we treat people still causes deep pain, doesn't it? We're dismissive, uncaring, we're selfish, we're self-interested. We can be rude, we can be unfriendly, unloving, unkind, unhelpful, inconsiderate. It might not cause that deep rift, but it can cause deep pain, can't it? Every day we hurt the people that we love the most. Not to mention the people that we meet at the supermarket that we treat with contempt because they deal with us a little bit too slowly. And that's just the things that we've done against each other. What about the things that we've done against God? God. God has poured out himself in love to us. He's made us this world, this beautiful world. He's made us beautiful trees and flowers and, and, and sky and space and stars and creatures. God's made us all this stuff. He's offered us the opportunity to know him. He said, come and know me. And we've got, no, you know what, I don't think I can just do without. No, I don't think I need you to be my friend. He sent his only son to rescue us, to die for us. And yet we say, I'd rather go on living without you. I I don't need you. If God keeps a record of sins, if God remembers how we've treated him, how we treated others, if God remembers how we've treated this world, his creation, his creatures, if God remembers how we've even treated ourselves, if God remembers that, if God keeps a record of that, no one can stand... Who can stand before a holy, righteous, pure God before a God who is pure love when we're mixed with hatred and jealousy? Who can stand before a God who is pure kindness and generosity when we're greedy and selfish? Who can stand before a God who's merciful and just when we're unmerciful, unforgiving and unjust? We always demand more repayment than what it's cost. A man in the the Bible by the name of Isaiah once caught a vision of God. And when he saw the glory of God, he was stricken. He was struck down. He said, I can't stand here. But it wasn't because he was a murderer or a thief. The reason that he couldn't stand before God, he says, is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. The reason he couldn't stand before God is because the way that he spoke was unclean inappropriate, unkind, unloving. Didn't honour God. So, why person said, the slightest of sins was enough to condemn him before God. This psalm is a wonderful illustration of our human predicament. Because of our rejection against God, we're at the bottom of a deep, dark pit and nothing can get out except our voice with which we cry out to God. We can't climb out, we can't get ourselves out. All we can do Is call out to the very God that we've rejected. Out of the depths I cry to you, O God, O Lord, hear my voice. So the Psalm begins with this description of the human predicament, uh, apart from the gospel. We're in this pit with no option but to cry to God. But then the Psalm goes on to lay out a reason for hope. Verse three If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. If God keeps a record, no one can stand. But the implication of verse 3 is that maybe God might not do that. Maybe God won't keep a record of sin. And that hope is spelled out then in the next verse, in verse 4. With God there is forgiveness. The great good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God has forgiven all our sins on the cross. And all we need to do is to receive that by trusting in Christ. What does it mean that God forgives us? It means that He tears up that record, that record of our sins. Two of my uh, two of my nieces like to joke that my father has a great forgettery. They're always uh, they're always saying, "Yeah, pa, you can store that in your forgettery," you know, because he has a terrible memory. He uh, he never remembers anything. Is that what God is like with our sin? You know, He's got this great forgettery, and uh, uh, and he and he goes, "Well, I, you know." I could have sworn Carl did something wrong, but I just can't put my finger on it. Oh, I can't remember what it is anymore. Is that what God is like with our sin? Is that what forgiveness is, having a bad memory? A few years ago, I, uh, I bought a car on a loan. And uh, for the years that I had that loan, I was always thinking to myself, I've got to pay back the loan, I've got, to, I've got to pay back the loan, I've got to pay back the loan. And, and, uh, and Toyota was always saying, Carl, you've got to pay back the loan, you've got to pay back the loan, you've got to pay back the loan. They'd send you letters saying, this is how much you owe and this is what you've paid and all this kind of stuff. And don't forget you've got the loan uh, and all that sort of thing. But the moment that I paid off the loan, I got a letter from, uh, from, from the finance company. They said, thanks for paying off the loan. Uh, they closed the account. I, I have not heard a single word from them since then. They've never written to me again. it's like uh, would you like another loan except maybe to say would you like another loan but once the debt was completely paid off the loan was forgotten i mean forgetting a loan when it hasn't been paid off is a bad idea right that's not a good idea but once it had been paid off it was forgotten and once it had been paid off it could be forgotten no one needs to think about it anymore it's done It's, it's it's dusted it's sorted it's solved and in the same way, God forgets our sin, not because he's forgetful. Oh, I can't think where I, where I placed that. No, it's not because God's forgetful, but because on the cross, Christ paid the debt that needed to be paid. He paid it so decisively that sin can be forgotten. It can be done away. We don't need to remember it anymore. The cost has been paid. There's nothing left to Remember? If God kept a record of sins, we couldn't stand. But with God, there is forgiveness. And yet, notice what the writer says next. He says that God's forgiveness causes him to fear. It causes him to fear God. You'd think that if God forgot sins, then we wouldn't be afraid. But the writer says it's because of God's forgiveness that he's feared. But fear here doesn't mean terror. Fear is, if you like, the Old Testament word. It's one of the Old Testament ways describing faith. The idea is uh, deep reverence uh, and cautious wonder, complete dependence, sort of humble trust. So here's the scenario that the psalm paints. You're at the bottom of a pit and you can't get out. Only God can reach down and grab you to pull you out of the pit of despair that your sin has plunged you into. What will your attitude be? How will you deal with God? Will you deal with God presumptuously? Well, I expect God will just get me out of here because I'm such a lovable person. I'm such a lovable (laughs) arrogant. God will just go, yeah, I love that guy. He can come out. Is that how we we treat God, presumptuously? Will it be arrogance? Will we say, I don't need you, God. I can get myself out, despite uh, observations to the contrary. Will it be disregard? Well, God can get me out, but it's sort of no big deal, right? How, are we, how will we deal with God if we were in that situation? Wouldn't the right attitude be reverent fear? I'm stuck in this pit, and only God can get me out. And if he chooses not to, I'm lost. I'm damned forever. <laughs> Therefore, I fear you, God, because I need you to be on my side. I need, I need you to say yes. It's not fear in the sense of terror, but fear in the sense, do you see, of humble respect. We need God to reach down and pluck us out. And so we come to God, we say, God, I deserve to be here. I'm here because of my own actions. But I know that you can pluck me out through the cross of Jesus. Please do it. That is fear... In this um, fear in the Bible is is this idea of deep reverence and cautious wonder, complete dependence and humble trust. If God kept a record of sins, none of us could stand. We'd be stuck in that pit forever. But the situation is not hopeless because God is a forgiving God and all we have to do is to receive that forgiveness by calling out to God and entrusting uh, in him. By saying to God, God, you've got to help me. Help me through Jesus Christ. So the psalm begins with this human predicament. Uh, we're in the sin, uh, pit, this pit because of sin. Uh, the psalm goes on to lay out the reason for hope. God is a forgiving God. Finally, at the end of the psalm, in the last part, uh, it ends with this expression of trust that God will actually do that. We will actually forgive and redeem. So verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. What does the writer do? He waits and trusts. He's not waiting uh, like waiting for someone at a cafe. Uh, I don't know you, know, you might know the drill. You, uh, you arrange to meet someone somewhere and, uh, and you go and you're sitting there waiting patiently and uh, five minutes passes and they still haven't turned up, and you think, it's okay. It's okay, they're just a little bit late. Ten minutes passes, and you think, yeah, I better just check my messages just to make sure i got the, the time and the place right. And you look, and you're in the right place at the right time. Fifteen minutes passes, it's starting to get awkward. You've been sitting in the cafe for 15 minutes now, you haven't bought anything, people are starting to look, you're on your own. You think I better just text them to see whether they've remembered? You message them, no response. Twenty minutes passes. You go, oh, I think I'd better call. You call them, they've forgotten. <laughs> they apologise profusely. Some of you are sitting here now, going, "Yeah, I, I'm sure he's talking about me," and I'm M. If any of you have stood me up before, I'm thinking <laughs> about all of you. I have kept a record. But some of us wait for God, don't we? Like we're waiting in a cafe for a friend. Will he come? Will he forgive? Will he show mercy? Has he forgotten? But in this psalm, waiting is not like that. It's not will he or won't he. It's like waiting for the morning, the writer says. As long as the night is, you know that the day is going to come. It might take forever to get there, but you absolutely know it's going to happen. The writer says, I know God will forgive because he said it in his word. He says, I'll put my hope in God's words. God said he'll forgive me, and I believe him. Next time you think to yourself, Will God forgive me? Can God forgive me for this? Ask yourself the question, will morning follow the night? And if the answer is yes, so will God forgive you? And if you think to yourself, will God forgive me? Ask yourself, does God say in the Bible that he'll forgive those who call out to him? The answer is yes, isn't it? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. Look then at what the writer says in verse 7 as well. He wants to really encourage those of us who are flagging in our faith. He wants to encourage us to trust God. He says, O Israel, that's the people of God, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The writer encourages us to hope in God, not in the sense of, I hope that will happen, and maybe it won't, but in the sense of, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. That is, that is hope in the sense of, God, you're my only hope to do this. If you don't do it, no one will. God, you're my only hope. We hope in God or trust in God because... His love is unfailing, the writer says. God's love is not like the Christmas present that breaks two weeks after you've unwrapped it. Uh, it's not like the, uh, you know, the, the skateboard gift that you ride around for a couple of weeks and then it's kind of bows in the middle uh, or snaps in two uh, you know, when you're trying to do a trick or something like that. No, God's, uh, God's forgiveness, God's love is not like that. God's forgiveness isn't great at first, but then it turns out that it can't support the weight of your sin. God's love is unfailing. It never breaks under the weight or the horror of our sin or of our lives or of who we are. We can hope in God, we can trust in God because his love is unfailing. We can trust in God because his redemption is plentiful. Redemption uh, is a word taken from uh, ancient times, it was a concept that's still used today. It was bound up with slavery. If someone was a slave, they could be redeemed from that by the payment of a price. And the writer is saying that there is no price for our redemption that is too high that God can't pay it. God doesn't get to the kind of uh, the, the pawnbroker's store and say, "Well, I'd like to redeem that person," and they say, "Well, that'd be uh, you know twelve thousand dollars," and he said, well, "Oh." well, I really wanted to, but I, I, I don't have enough to pay for it. Our sin is not like that. The death of Jesus paid for all our sins. What will it cost God to redeem you that he hasn't paid in full already in the, in the death of Jesus? And God says here that there's no sin that goes unforgiven. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. All their sins, not just some of them. Whenever I wash my car, I don't know if you had this, uh, you, you know, you, you hose it down and you, you scrub it and you scrub and you scrub and you say, yep, yep, I've got everything. And you wash it off and you look around and you go, yeah, pretty good. And then you take the car out the next day and there's this streak along the side. Like it's perfectly formed. It's like the dirt's never been touched. God's forgiveness is not like that. Where sort of a few days later we go, Oh, there's this is part of our lives that that God never scrubbed clean. No, God's forgiveness gets every spot. You might think, oh, but there's this one thing. There's this one thing that you don't know about that, that He could never forgive. But God says He can. God says he can cleanse every stain. The blood of Jesus is so strong that it never fails under the weight of our sin. It's so plentiful that there's nothing for which it cannot pay. And it's so comprehensive that it cleanses every stain and leaves nothing behind. Well, I don't know where you are. Maybe you feel today like you're at the bottom of that deep pit. Maybe that's where you are. And you think, I can't get out of here. You have this tremendous sense, God has given you a tremendous sense of the, the evil of sin and the wickedness of sin, the depravity of, of, of how we've treated him and treated each other. And you think, I can't get out of here. You think, there's no way back. Well, if that's you, God says to you this morning that there is a way back. There's a way back through the death and resurrection of his own son. There's a way back through his unfailing love and his plentiful redemption. And his complete cleansing. Or perhaps you don't feel like you're at the bottom of a pit. Life's going pretty well without Jesus. But whether you feel like you're there or not, that's, that's where we are apart from Christ. We're living in a kind of a two-by-two-meter cell and we think to ourselves, well, this is great, isn't it? This is, this is living. Until God plucks us out and we see that there's actually a whole world a great world, a magnificent world, lived in the knowledge of the mercy and the kindness and the love and the forgiveness of God. You need to ask God to show you your need of him and you need to cry out to him to pluck you out of that pit. Or maybe you've been at the bottom of that pit and you're not there anymore. God has plucked you out and you know the grace and the love of God You've called out to God and he's answered you and you know he's answered you (laughs) and you're at the top with Christ and you know it. Praise the Lord. Well, I want to finish this morning with a poem that uh, I found from time to time quite helpful. It was written by a man who had a Psalm 130 kind of experience. Uh, I've read it before but uh, uh, that was quite some time ago but hopefully... Uh, Hopefully, it will be helpful. Uh, It's called One Drop of Blood. One day I looked into my heart to find out all my sin. I found myself a rotten man. I found no good within. Too many sins were there to count, and some that seemed too great. What could be done that I could do to overcome mistakes? Yet in my grief, the father gave the smallest little vial. What is therein, he said to me, could wash away the Nile. What power in this vial must be to all my filth remove, to make my crooked highways straight, my rocky places smooth. This is the blood of my own son. His wounds have paid your dues. On him was all my judgment spent, on curses meant for you. How precious then this vial must be. Why should it be for me when all I've done is scheme and hurt and cause you injury? What I have done I did for you but more for my own name to bring back what the devil said could never be reclaimed. So when I took the vial as mine, I dared to look inside. I found a single drop of blood and nothing else beside. But then my heart found cause to doubt, is one drop all that's needed? For I have done such wrong to you, more cleansing, Lord, I pleaded. You heard the words I spoke to you, all that I give suffices. Just trust in Christ and rest in him and lay aside your vices. O Lord, forgive my doubts and fears and help me trust in thee. One drop, one precious drop of blood, enough to set me free. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we know because your word tells us, Lord, because our own hearts tell us that we have sinned so magnificently, so appallingly, so enormously, Lord, all we've done is to scheme and hurt and to cause you injury. Lord, we've schemed and hurt, uh, hurt, schemed against others and hurt others and we've schemed against you and hurt you. And Lord, apart from Christ, we are utterly condemned. We stand in need of your abundant mercy and grace. And Lord, we thank you this morning that in Christ Jesus, one single drop of his blood, one moment uh, of his life is more than enough uh, to atone for uh, all our sins. Lord, we thank you that Uh, For those of us who trusted in you, that you have pulled us out of the pit of despair, out of the miry clay, and you've set our feet on solid ground. Lord, thank you that we know that uh, we are right with you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And Lord, we pray that once again this morning you'd press those realities to our hearts, that you would uh, comfort and encourage us, that you would keep us from doubting that we would truly believe that uh, the death of Christ is sufficient for all our sins. Lord, for those of us who are stuck still at the bottom with a keen awareness of our sin, Lord, encourage those people, Lord, uh, and help them to cry out to you and with the psalmist to trust you, uh, that they would put their hope in your unfailing love. And Lord, for those who are hardened uh, in unbelief, Lord, who don't want to acknowledge or admit uh, the way that they've rejected you uh, or their need of you. Father, we ask that you would call them uh, to trust you, to repent, to turn away from sin uh, and to delight in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.